Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. And today I'm going to tell you about the murder of Deborah Shepard. Today I am drinking a hazelnut K-cup coffee. That's the words. Hot coffee. I was drinking tea, but I ran out. So now I'm just drinking water, which is very boring. Honestly, a beer sounds kind of good, and I'm considering grabbing one. But we'll see how it goes. I also need to warm up my coffee, so Abby and I may take a pause for those of you you guys won't even notice so pour a cup or is this your first time yeah pour (laughs) a cup or a glass or a mug of whatever you're drinking and let's dive in We will continue on with our content for this week's episode shortly, but first we wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity to listen to even more Crime Over Coffee content. By signing up for our Patreon, you can receive ad-free episodes and additional content. To check out this opportunity and sign up for the Crime Over Coffee Patreon, visit www.patreon.com slash crimeovercoffeepod. Thank you again for all of your support. Fun fact for you guys, as we were recording this episode, we may have received a text from our editor asking why the 1012 <laughs> episode is not uploaded. The 1019 episode is. So if that tells you how Abby and I are doing. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, Mike, our episode will be uploaded shortly. Thank you for asking. <laughs> also can confirm that I went and got a beer. So let's dive in. <laughs> I also got coffee. So it was a very productful Good thing Abby's doing this one. Okay, bye. Thank you all for, you know, taking that short break with us while we refilled our beverages. Okay, let's get into it. So, full disclosure, this case started out as me watching an episode of Cold Case Files, as I do often. And I was like, this is interesting. And so I started, you know, taking notes and I was like, I'll research this. And it quickly turned into something much larger than I anticipated. With that being said, I certainly could have went about this episode in a different way. But because of how I was introduced to it, I kind of liked the process. So that's what I'm going to stick with. But... At the end, I do think there are two other full episodes I could make out of this. So that'll probably happen in the future. And if you want to be surprised when that happens, don't dig too deep into your own research on this one. Okay. Deborah Shepard was 23 years old and a senior at Southern Illinois University in 1982. Uh, The university was located in Carbondale, Illinois. She was pretty close to graduating. She was working on her degree in marketing. She was known as this really fantastic person. She was sweet, loving. She didn't make enemies. Just an all-around great person. Her family members all had nothing but stellar things to say about her. On April 8th in 1982, around, well, sometime in the evening or the night, Deborah was going to be at her place, her apartment, cleaning up. It was planned for some of her family members to come into town the next day for Easter. One of her friends, his name is Randy. I don't have a last name, but at one point they had dated, but it was kind of fizzling out and he wanted to go see a movie. And Deborah was like, you know, what? I, I really want to get the apartment prepped, so I'm going to stay in and clean. However, he decided he was going to come over and see her and 
just maybe help out with cleaning, say hi. And I think she was anticipating this because when he arrived to the scene, there was a note on her door that said, knock hard, I'm in the shower so that she would hear and be able to speed up and go let him in. However, he's knocking and she's not answering. And so he notices that the door is, it's unlocked. So he kind of goes in and he's yelling for Deborah and she's not hearing anything back. So he's like, okay, let me go look. And so he goes up towards the bathroom and actually ends up going into her bedroom and unfortunately sees Deborah's body on the floor. He immediately leaves and goes to a friend's house nearby and calls 911. When police arrive, they see that Deborah is laying on the ground in her bedroom, face down. She's naked and doesn't really appear to have any injuries on her body. They do see that the phone in her room had been cut, the cord was, and that there was the outer pane of a window going into the house on the ground. They're looking around, but they're not seeing anything too out of place. And they were pretty sure she had taken a shower and gotten out of the shower and then was attacked. When they came in to actually move her body and transport it, some fluid and blood or something had dripped out of her mouth and it hit a t-shirt that happened to be laying on the ground so investigators took that too. They're chatting with Randy and they pretty quickly are able to decide that he wasn't involved. His alibi checked out he had been at work and his reaction and how he was acting they said seemed genuine. The coroner, I mean, he does an autopsy, but he's basically like, I don't know what happened. Everything seems fine. And he actually ends up determining that there was no foul play and says that she died of natural causes. However, her family and very specifically her dad, Bernie, is like, absolutely not. I don't believe this. It hurts my head to even explore this. But for a minute, let's let's go down this route. If she died of natural causes... What was his explanation for the phone line being cut and the window pane being broken or pushed out or whatever? I don't remember if you said it was broken or not, but he pushed out. D- did did he have an explanation for that? Or? I'm assuming not. I'm guessing, I mean, it was just a coroner, so I think he or she was just looking at it as what they physically had in front of them. But yes, good points that you make. Let me just also say, Deborah was a healthy 23-year-old woman. And so for him to kind of chalk it up, say maybe it was some type of medical thing or a natural cause or whatever that would, would mean, it just seemed a little far-fetched. But if he said it was natural causes, was he able to like narrow it down at all to heart attack, nope. brain aneurysm, stroke, seizure? I, they did say a pulmonary and. Edema. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Or if I type the right word, but yeah. Okay. Something to do with blood, but yeah, I don't. Mm-hmm. It was kind of frowned upon, and there was some thoughts that because she was an African American woman, that the police department weren't giving it its due justice and in looking into it. As I mentioned, Deborah's family was not buying this, and Bernie decided to have her body transported back to Chicago to have a second opinion. Now that Deborah's body is in Chicago and someone else is examining her, they are able to note that she had some very deep bruising on her neck. And they also find that there is sperm present 
when they conducted the rape kit. And so they end up ruling that she had died by strangulation and was sexually assaulted. With this new information, it goes back to the original police department who were investigating, who had to be like, okay, yeah, we'll reopen. We'll open this as a murder investigation now. I'm just being me at the moment. But how did he say that strangula... Like, how do they go from pulmonary edema to strangulation because strangulation is most likely going to have some either physical marks like on the outside of like bruising or i forget what that bone's called that bone's going to be broken i'm just confused the negligence from the initial like coroner yeah i don't think there's even a question it's just they didn't do a good job (laughs) it was more of a sarcastic question it's like frustrating that they just didn't feel like investigating a murder case that day. So they're like, we're just going to say that she died of natural causes and move on. Just to think, it's so crazy that if her dad hadn't stepped in, she would have just been ruled like they would have buried her and just moved on. And that's it. And it's it's really disappointing. But on the opposite end, at least now we have some information and something to move forward with. Unfortunately, though, they, they are kind of stuck. They start talking to people that were in Deborah's life, her friends, and chatting with people to see if anyone seemed suspicious. And even Bernie was like, <laughs> I Deborah's sister Bridget was in, in an interview I watched and she said that Bernie actually approached all of her, all of Deborah's male friends and asked them to take polygraph tests. And they all did because they were just as, Surprise, and they were wanting to help as well. Did any of them also happen to just offer up their DNA samples? Because you said that they had sperm. Yes, but I'm kind of glad you mentioned that. It was going to come up. This is 1982 before they can oh. pull a DNA read from these. They can determine from the rape kit that there was sperm present, or they could determine if there was a different blood that wasn't Deborah's and what the type is. But that's as far as they really can go with it. I keep forgetting that you said this was 1982. Mm-hmm. I think that's the hardest part about these cases that we cover is I just want to be like, well, why aren't they using this technology? It didn't exist 30 years yeah. ago, 40 years ago. To be fair, I did preface this with saying it was a cold case files episode. You did also preface that that's how you watched it <laughs> or you heard about it. So I listen, a cold case could be three years old. That's true. Thank you. Believe it or not, that might have been a perfect segue. Her case becomes cold because all the leads dry up. There was something that started to kind of develop, but while it ends up tying in a little bit to this, the two police departments or investigators investigating what I'm going to tell you did not connect the dots. Okay, so Cape Girardeau, which is a town in Missouri about 50 miles away from the town in Illinois where Deborah was murdered, started having cases come up that had some resemblances to Deborah's. On January 26, 1982, Margie Call, who worked as a bookkeeper at um, Woolworth, I'm not really sure what type of company that is, but she'd worked there for 42 years. Um, She was living in Cape Girardeau and she had a lot of friends. She was a mom and a grandma. And one evening she had left work and decided to go out and play cards with some of her friends. This was something they did often. And they would always follow her home and make sure she got into the house okay. And that was the same case for this. However, the next day she didn't show up for work and her coworkers were 
very concerned about it. And so they called her brother. And when he went over to Margie's house, he found out that she had actually not made it to work because she had unfortunately been murdered. When he went into the house, he found Margie laying face down on her bed and the bed had been made and her hands were bound behind her back with a cord. She was completely naked except for some shoes that she had had on. Additionally, a broken window was found at the house and they assumed this was likely the point of entry. And they did also find part of the cord that was used to tie her hands also in the bathroom and two hairs that did not belong to her. They did determine that she died from strangulation and that she was sexually assaulted. Again, we have this kind of what would be key evidence, but DNA is not that far along. They end up not having much of a lead. And then about six months later on June 21st in the same town, Mildred Wallace was also a woman that was found dead in her home with kind of the same circumstances and manners. She was 65 years old. She had been blindfolded and tied up and sexually assaulted. She also lived about five blocks from where Margie lived. And there was a window that was either broken or open. I can't remember which, but that was determined to be the point of entry. The only thing different with hers is that she had actually been shot in the side of her head with a 38 caliber handgun. However, they were pretty sure with all the other circumstances that these were connected. So the one thing that first stood out to me when you mentioned that, that I thought was interesting, Margie and Mildred were both quite a bit older than Deborah, Because by like 40 years, which is interesting. Oh, yeah. It's something I thought, too, that was interesting. And, you know, at this point, they haven't actually connected the two cases. As you could probably guess how I'm telling it, they do get connected later on. Our story really takes a big turn here in a lot of ways. Basically, these cases begin to go cold. But in May of 2006, so we're going way into the future, over 25 years after the murders, there is a new gentleman working at the Illinois State Police Crime Lab in Carbondale, Illinois, where Deborah was murdered. His name is Paul Eccles, and he was actually doing an interview with a DNA expert, and her name is Suzanne Kidd. And they were doing an interview about a different case that Paul had helped solve, another cold case through DNA. And when they were filming, like during their downtime, he's just talking to her about this other cold case that he really wants Suzanne to look into, and that ends up being Deborah's case. It takes about a year because Paul was still kind of new at the department, and so when he wanted to look into the case, he kind of got denied by supervisors. But a year later, he's in, been in there longer, he's promoted, and he gets the green light to finally look into it. And so Suzanne takes all the evidence for Deborah's case and starts looking into it. If you guys remember, as I said earlier, when they moved Deborah's body, some fluids had fallen out of her mouth onto a shirt that was on the floor, and so they collected it as well. And when Suzanne looked at the shirt, she was able to get some semen from it and test it for DNA. On August 9th, 2007, she's able to get a DNA match. The DNA matches 63-year-old Timothy Wayne Cratcher. And what they find out is that he was an EMT. Um, At one point, he was in the Navy. He pretty early on started getting in trouble for stuff. Um, He actually was dishonorably discharged from the Navy for some sexual assaults that occurred when he was stationed in Chicago. When all this happened, he, he did end up 
getting sentenced to 40 years in prison in 1963 because of it. However, he joined this group, um, I guess in prison they were, you could be trained as a paramedic. And so he was trained as such. I, that was a new one for me. I hadn't heard that before. However, they they ended up releasing him in 1976 after serving only 13 years of his 40 year sentence. I assume because of good behavior and, you know, whatnot, but that is a very short time to serve of your sentence, in my opinion. That's a, yeah, that's like nothing. Right. What's the connection between Timothy and Deborah? I'm curious about that one. Yeah, they are able to confirm that he was, in fact, in Carbondale during Deborah's murder. Um, When he was paroled, he actually got a job at the university in their ambulance service. Okay. I feel as though there should be some better screening. Like, I'm all for reform and things, but somebody who served time in prison or has been convicted of sexual assault should not be allowed to work on a college campus or any campus. Yeah, and, you know, nowadays they're not even allowed to be close to it. (laughs) So uh, it's definitely a different situation happening back then and a very unfortunate one. He continues to be an awful person, believe it or not. In 1979, he gets arrested for having some quote, indecent liberties, end quote, with a child. Some of his victims and whether this end up, there are murder victims and sexual assault victims, but they range from like 11 or 12 all the way to 65 or 70. And so he's getting in trouble now in 1979 for his incident with, and I'm saying incident just because that's how they put it in the court documents, but he basically sexually assaulted a kid and he went back to prison and a little tidbit I got that was, I thought was kind of interesting. He actually became the first person in this county to be certified as a sexually dangerous person. And so he does go back to jail for it and is released in June of 1981. Why do we keep releasing him when it's very clearly a constant problem? I know. It's insane to me. But yeah, so we have him 1981 and he's working at the university. Now we're back here to 2007 where they have physically connected him. And so the detective, Eccles, finds out that Timothy is serving time in a prison in Ina, Illinois, and he had been there for 19 years for three sexual assaults. And so Eccles goes to talk to him. Of course, Timothy denies it, even though they're like, we know it's you, we have the evidence. And he just keeps denying it, but Eccles leaves and then ends up getting a call. And on August 22nd, 2007, Timothy had actually asked Eccles to come back and confesses to murdering and sexually assaulting Deborah. Now, you might be wondering, hey, you talked about two other people. (laughs) Well, a news release comes out and Jimmy Smith, who is a detective at Cape Girardeau, where Mildred and Margie were murdered, sees it and goes, hey, that sounds really familiar. And so he actually calls Eccles and they connect and look at the time frame and they test the DNA from Mildred and Margie's cases and are able to connect timothy as well that's insane i was not expecting to have 
answers to all three of the cases that you presented today. Yeah, it's really sad, but I'm glad they've, they're finally getting this closure for the families. And the, the issue, though, is Timothy is denying Mildred and Margie's murders. And the biggest reason they think that is is because Illinois didn't have the death penalty, but Missouri did. And so they strike a deal with him that they won't go for the death penalty if he confesses to his crimes. And they got the okay from the family members of the murdered women before doing so. And so they get a full confession. He does kind of say he would just go after women who were vulnerable, who were who lived alone. He would find them in parking lots and follow them home and just kind of case the place for a while until he saw his opportunity. He ends up confessing to the murders of nine women. And additionally, he admits to over 20 unsolved sexual assaults and burglaries and an attempted murder. And the attempted murder actually resulted in a wrongful conviction in 1981. The known murder victims that he has confessed to or have been connected with DNA include the following. Mary Parsh and Brenda Parsh, who were mother and daughter, 58 and 27, and they were murdered and sexually assaulted on August 12, 1977. Sheila Cole, who was 21 and was murdered in November of 1977. Virginia Lee Whitty, who was 51, murdered May 12th. Joyce Tharp, who was 29 and murdered on March 23, 1979. Myrtle Rupp, who is 51 years old, murdered April 17th, 1979. Ida White, who is 72 and murdered September 7th, 1981. That is the case where the wrongful conviction came in. I'm not going to dive too deep into it because I do think I'm going to cover this in a future episode. Then we have Margie, Deborah, and Mildred as well. On April 4th, 2008, he got sentenced to 13 consecutive life sentences, no possibility of parole, and he ended up serving at Pontiac Correctional Facility in Illinois. I don't know if he's still alive or not. Honestly, who cares about him? He can die or not die. Nobody's going to care. But yeah, this case, it started out, like I said, me just hearing about Deborah Shepard and looking into it and then it just took this huge turn and it's kind of crazy because he's a serial killer that I haven't really heard about and I do think maybe that's something we'll cover in the future so that we can actually tell the stories of all the victims. Thanks to listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.